You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, I'm really, uh, I'm really glad to be here with you guys today. Um, enter my passcode. There we go. Get the thing. Go to the top. Get out the clicker, and we're good. Okay. Um, I never take it lightly when I'm asked or invited to speak somewhere that's not my home church. Um, And I also, for the last 12 years of my life, um, have only been asked to speak on difficult things. That's really all I've done. So I, uh, I, when I first came to First Image, I was my wife and I were. There's a whole story there. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But we ended up at First Image through a series of events. Um, I was hired to direct Reality Project, which is a sexual integrity program that we had speaking in public schools around the greater Portland area about sex and relationships. And um, and so that was what I did for a number of years. So I spoke to over 20,000 students in the greater Portland area, and. Um, we were invited to speak in that context. And uh, when I first came to First Image, I wasn't all that connected with the rest of what was happening in the ministry of First Image. Now, maybe some of you are already familiar with that, but um, First Image includes actually a family of programs, a family of ministries. So um, First Image is the umbrella organization. Um, It's a reference to the image of God. That's what we mean when we say First Image. It's a reference to our belief that every person conceived is created in the image of God. And we also have a set of pregnancy centers called Pregnancy Resource Centers, which are in the greater Portland area, um, Gresham, Southeast Portland, and Beaverton, where we serve women who are facing unsupported pregnancy. We also have a program that serves people who have had abortion experiences or other pregnancy loss experiences. We've actually just expanded it to include miscarriage and stillbirth. Other things that we, um, that we recognize um, we don't always do an awesome job at supporting. And so uh, that's, kind of, that's kind of the picture of the ministry. When I first came in, I was connected with what was happening in the schools. I wasn't as connected with what was happening in the rest of the ministry. And so um, I, maybe like many of you, Uh, was somewhat disengaged, actually, from the whole abortion issue. So I grew up in a post-Roe world, which means I don't remember when Roe v. Wade was decided. So I don't remember life before abortion was just the reality in our culture. And because of that, I, I struggled a little bit understanding the way that we were responding at times to the reality of abortion in our culture. And uh, I think, for many of us, um, abortion kind of has become, for some of us, it's become kind of an issue that's out there, a thing that we hear about and that we think about sometimes, Um, but that feels somewhat disconnected and distant. And the reality is that most of us, actually, if we sit down and talk about it, our feelings, our thoughts, our experiences, or maybe difficult and complex around this topic. So the out there issueness of it doesn't quite, doesn't quite um, resonate. There was actually a study done recently out of the University of Notre Dame uh, that was trying to get behind the labels people use 
to describe their views on abortion, pro-choice, pro-life. Try to get behind what they actually mean when they use those labels. What they found is that people were actually way more complicated than those labels would suggest. That was true in and out of the church. Didn't matter what the context was or what the label was. People were more complicated when you actually talked about what they really were thinking, feeling, and experiencing. There was eight really um, kind of core results from this study. I'm just going to talk about a couple. One was that they found pretty quickly that people don't actually talk about this, almost at all. Um, they use labels to describe what they believe their view is, but when they sit down and are asked to actually talk about it, they, um, they're figuring it out in real time as they're talking because they haven't really actually ever talked in depth. And the second, one of, one of the other things, not the second, but one of the other things that came out of that study um, was this. This is the summary of a second point. Abortion is not merely political to everyday Americans, but it's intimately personal. I just want to read the summary from this. Public conversation treats abortion as an abstract political construct more than an intimately personal one. It is in reality to everyday Americans. One quarter of our female interviewees disclosed personal abortion histories. Three quarters of interviewees knew someone personally who has had an abortion. Abortion is not a hypothetical exercise in ideology or doctrinal adherence, but a lived and often fraught experience. Abortion stories also don't fit neatly into scenarios that are imagined by surveys or conjured when arguing the merits of a given position. Personal relationships alter attitudes towards abortion, as do experiences with infertility, pregnancy, miscarriage, adoption, and abortion. Abortion touches not only distant others, but neighbors, co-workers, family, and friends. So I want to recognize that as we talk together today about what it looks like for us to be a faithful witness to the vision of life that God has demonstrated to us, that there's a lot of challenging realities that are in the room with us. And we've got to talk about it in that context. So I'm going to make a couple assumptions. Forgive me, but I'm going to do that. Uh, one, I'm going to make the assumption that actually a lot of you are super uncomfortable right now, okay? Uh, that you don't like that I keep using the word abortion, and you uh, might rather that we talk about something slightly different. Um, so I'm going to make that assumption that a lot of you are uncomfortable, and, uh, and that's okay. We're going to do that together, okay? I have to do this all the time, so you can do it with me for one day. Um, <laughs> The second assumption I'm going to make is one I've already said. This is an in-here reality, not an out-there issue. The third assumption I'm going to make um, is that you are actually hungry for an incredibly beautiful, deeply compelling, always countercultural vision of life. 
I'm going to make an assumption that you actually want that. I'm going to make that assumption because you're created in the image of God. Something interesting about the work I used to do with the Reality Project is people would often wonder, like, how do you do that? How do you step into a public school and have that not go real bad when you're talking about sex and relationships? The answer is the image of God. The answer is that the people we're speaking to are created in the image of God. And what that means is that they actually connect with a lot of what we're saying about relationships and sexuality, sacrificial love. They're connected with those things because they're made in the image of God. So uh, I think I can assume that we're hungry for that kind of vision. Our central question for today is actually represented in the title to the message today, which is witness to life. The central question is how do we bear witness faithfully to the sort of beautiful, compelling, comprehensive, countercultural vision to which Jesus himself was a perfect witness. How do we faithfully bear witness to that? And to add one point to it, how do we bear witness to that as people who were living as exiles? If you missed Gary's sermon last week, I would recommend that you check it out. It was fantastic. And in it, Gary talked about um, the fact that we as followers of Jesus in our time and place are exiles in Babylon. We live in a place that we don't belong. So the question is not just how do we bear witness, but how do we bear witness in a place like that? I think it might be helpful for us to go back to, uh, to go back to our birth, not your birth, not interested. Um, to our birth as the church. I want you to imagine for a moment that you live in a culture very different from this one. You're no longer American. You're no longer part of what we call the modern world. You have no Twitter, no Facebook, no TikTok, and the people said yes and amen. There is no MSNBC and there is no Fox News. In this culture, there are not democratically elected presidents, just emperors, appointed governors, and various kings. You have no vote. Imagine in this context that you are actually a part of the nation of Israel, but you are ultimately subject to the rule of Rome. You have no kingdom. You have joined a movement birthed out of Israel called Christianity less than a generation after the death of Jesus and the birth of the church. You are a part of a persecuted minority, not a powerful majority. In your host culture, the place that you live, the wider Greco-Roman world, people are not considered to have intrinsic value. They are not valuable simply because they are human. They are only considered valuable in relation to their utility to the state. In other words, in this world, no human deserves protection or life simply on the basis of their humanness. They have only extrinsic value. That is, value granted to them by the state and just as easily taken away. In this world, abortion is not considered in any way ethically problematic, though it is not that common. It's not common because it's really hard. There are tinctures and herbs that someone might take to induce abortion, but it's dangerous and it's not all that effective. 
What is much more common is what we call exposure. Children deemed undesirable by the state or who are otherwise a burden to society, for example, those with, those with disabilities or who are not the right gender or for some other reason are not perceived to contribute to the needs of the broader society are left outside to die. It's not a fundamentally shameful practice because there is no concept of the fundamental worth of a child. You, however, as a part of this new movement, don't see it that way. As a part of Israel and as a part of this movement of people following Jesus, you view people as having intrinsic value because they have been created in the image of God. As a result, you have no shared version, shared vision of the human person with your host culture. And because you have no power, you have no reason to believe it will ever get any better. So what I'm asking you to imagine is the actual world into which the church was born. Now, there's more that we could say about that pre-Christian world. Um, but before the spread and eventual adoption of Christianity by much of the West, Christian principles anyway, ideas like the image of God and the dignity of every person were strange, foreign concepts. So here's my question. How does that change? How does the world go from a place where people actually don't have inherent worth, which we now take for granted, um, to a world where, on the whole, they are considered to. Let's open your uh, scriptures, open the Bible to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. This uh, is another commission by Jesus. Um, it's recorded in two places. It's recorded at the end of Luke, which was written by Luke, and at the beginning of Acts, which was also written by Luke. So it's interesting. He ends his last book with a version of this story, and he starts the next volume of this story, Acts, with another version of this story. But it's, an, it's interesting because it's, it's actually recounting a conversation that Jesus had as the final conversation before he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. The conversation begins with a question, and I think it's an important question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, uh, this is not attributed to any one disciple, which means, I think, that it was the general sentiment of all who were present. <laughs> the question, Lord, are you going to 
as yet make things the way we were expecting you to make them from the time we realized you were the Messiah, right? So um, part of what's interesting to me about this question is it's asked after Jesus has died and then risen from the dead and spent 40 days through various proofs demonstrating that he has risen from the dead. And their question at the end of all of that is, but right, what about the kingdom of Israel getting restored, right? What about that question? Now, I don't want to be too hard on them. I don't want to be too hard on them because we all ask that question. We all ask the same question. We have this same impulse. The question could be read a few different ways. Um, reading it one way, they're asking, will you restore our past glory? Now, you have to remember Israel in its prime was a glorious place. It was secure. It was prosperous. It had good, wise, noble kings. It had the presence of God dwelling with them in a temple. Okay, all of these things they want to see restored. Not all of that is bad. They're asking, are you going to restore the glory we experienced before? There's another way to read it too. Are you going to establish utopia now? Are you going to make things the way that we think they should be? Not a bad question. <laughs> Not a bad question to ask Jesus. Another way we could read that question is, how long, O oh Lord... How long will we be under this, will we be subjugated to unjust rule? How long will we be out of our homeland? How long will we see suffering and chaos and death? Important questions for the people of God to be asking. And Jesus is gracious in his answer. He says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't say, dumb question. He says, not yet. And earlier uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Jesus says, actually, the Son doesn't even know when any of this is going to happen. So nobody knows. I don't even know. So a little presumptuous of you to ask. But um, no, it's not happening just Yet. He's gracious in his response, saying that actually at one time, yes, the kingdom of God is going to be established and Jesus, who is king, will reign over everything. That's not going to happen yet. So in the meantime, and here's Jesus' redirection. But. No, uh, not everything is going to be made right, right here, right now, in this plot of earth that we call Israel. Not everything is going to be made right, right here, right now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're not going to receive earthly power in the shape of a present kingdom, but you are going to receive power. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
I want to come back real quick to the version of this story back in Luke. So in Luke 24, you can turn there if you like, 24 chapter 44, sorry, chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So their minds were actually closed off to what Jesus was saying. Why do I know that? Because it says he had to open them. <laughs> he had to open their minds to redirect them towards a new motivation for their work in the world, for the witness that he's going to send them onto. And what is that new motivation? Or to put it another way, what is the thing that they're being asked to witness to? If not to the establishment of this kingdom right here, right now, then what is the thing that they are actually being asked to witness to? The gospel? The good news? Uh, here's how he says it. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It is the message that we know, the message about the death and resurrection and eventual, well, present reign that will eventually be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the good news to which we are ambassadors, and it has been inaugurated by the death and resurrection where repentance and forgiveness of sins, in other words, people are now able to enter that future kingdom right here in the present. They can enter the future kingdom now before any of the earthly stuff has actually been established. They can enter it here and now. One of my favorite articulations of the gospel is the one that's going to be really familiar to all of us, which is this, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I also find this to be probably the most challenging articulation of the gospel to actually receive. Here's why. For God so loved the world. And you guys have been waiting for me to get to the point where I talk about life you know, like sanctity of human life, you know, this kind of stuff. I started off talking about abortion. We've kind of taken a little bit of a trail down to the birth of church. We're back, okay? We're back here to talking about God's vision for life. It's actually embedded in the gospel. It's embedded in this motivation that God is calling us to. For God so loved the world. Sounds really nice in general. Less nice if you get specific, Okay? Included in the world are those who are closest to you and those who are farthest away. It includes your neighbor with Down syndrome and the one that urinates on the sidewalk as you're coming into work. It includes our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and our Russian brothers and sisters, Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Zelensky. It includes Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. 
It includes many of the people in our city you have never met, including the ones who are currently bound up in tit-for-tat shootings that we're reading about on the news. It's Antifa and the Proud Boys. It's those that speak Farsi or Mandarin Chinese, the dialects of the Southern Delta or of South Central LA. It is men who are married to men and women who are living as men. It is the one who is in her 95th year and the one who is in his sixth day of gestation. It includes you. This is what for God so loved the world means and that's why this teaching is so challenging. It's so unbelievably challenging. I bet you were kind of fighting me a little bit internally. You can admit it. You know, recently I had to confess that my heart was becoming hard toward Portland as a place, as a city. Now, maybe some of you have had this kind of conversation with the people in your life. I'm so glad I don't live in Portland. Now, maybe you do live in Portland, in which case, great. Um, But many of you are probably saying, boy, that place is just not great right now. We had some people who came to visit us from a national agency. Larry and I had a meeting with them. They came in, they sat down, and they were like, our offices are on Hawthorne. And they were like, we didn't know what to expect. We thought we were going to be passing like burned out cars as we came down from the airport. They were genuinely terrified to enter the city of Portland. Now, I don't want to downplay the very real things that are happening in Portland right now. There's very real stuff There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of difficulty. But let me tell you what, Jesus loves Portland. And our ministry is mostly based in Portland. And and you cannot serve people that you do not love. So we have to confess that. It's hard teaching. It's love your neighbor and it's love your enemy. All wrapped up into one. For God so loved the world. So that's what we're witnessing too. But how do we actually do that witness? In other words, what does it mean to witness to it? Witness is a is a pretty uh, actually a pretty robust word. Um, It involves many many things. So there's uh, witness as a verb, witness as a noun, witness in singular, witness in plural. Right, So I could say I witnessed to something, I saw something happen, and I am a witness to it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act by speaking what I saw. That's, that's witness. I also can be a witness to a reality by living in line with it. So if I actually shift my life to align with another reality, I'm acting, acting as a witness to that other reality, right? It's another version of witness. My wife and I own a farm. Okay, I know, sort of out of left field. I don't know where we're headed right now, but um, we, we uh, have pigs and chickens and ducks and we do meat and eggs. And we try to do the like regenerative, sustainable farming thing. That's kind of our, that's kind of our jam. Care for the earth, care for our animals, care for ourselves, care for our community. That's kind of, it's kind of how, not a lot of people do that. I don't know if you know this, but there's not a lot of farms in the world that operate this way. And so people who do the kind of thing that we do often talk about it as a demonstration plot. That is a place in the world where things operate differently than they do in other places in the world. Part of what it means for us to witness, maybe a lot of what it means for us to witness, is that we are a demonstration plot for another reality. 
Now, uh, I mentioned what it was like for the early church in their context. We're in a similar situation. They had no power. We experienced diminishing power. They, they had a totally different view of the human person than their culture. We increasingly have a very different view of the human person than our culture. And they had no hope that things on earth were going to get much better. And let's be honest, we shouldn't expect that all of a sudden things are just going to get better right here, right now. We're in a similar situation. And so this vision of us as a demonstration plot, I think, becomes more and more important. That is to have places in the world and a people who operate fundamentally differently than the world around them where the rules are just totally different, where the thing that shapes us is the gospel and the values of the kingdom of God and that those are pulled back down into the reality that we're living here in the present. You know, that is what we are trying to do in our work in pregnancy centers. Okay, that is what we're actually trying to do. Um, We are creating a place that people come to where things operate differently than other places that they would be. Where, where a different vision of the human person is in operation. Where, uh, where a holistic, comprehensive vision for uh, the love of God towards a person is in operation. And so we say we are working to create places in the world where moms and dads can find a way forward to give abundant life to their children. That's what the pregnancy centers exist to do. I think it maybe isn't that all different than all that different. Yeah, all that different from what um, we as the people of God do together. I said it can be using the singular or the plural, right? So you can be a witness, but the more common way for us as the people of God to understand it would be we are witnesses together. So that is our life together as the body of Christ witnesses to the thing that God is doing in the world and to the vision of life that he wants for every person. I love the way that this passage ends. This 11th verse here. Yeah, this is where I always forget and I just skip all the slides and here we go. Um, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus just ascends into heaven, and they are just looking up there in the sky like, Whoa, he's gone. He just left. Should we stay here forever, waiting for him to come back? We probably should. That would probably be a good idea for us right now. Thankfully, praise the Lord, some some guys show up out of nowhere and say, hey, what are you just standing there for? (laughs) Um, Maybe you should do what Jesus just commissioned you to do instead of standing there looking into the sky because there would have been some temptations. If this wouldn't have happened, I think things would have actually turned out totally differently. I think there's a real possibility that they would have actually either gone back to the project of trying to restore Israel, um, the, the, the physical nation of Israel, they would have gone back to that project, or they would have just waited for the rescue of God 
to come to them at some point. You know, they might have just set up like a church right there, you know, right where Jesus went up and then just stayed there forever. But they didn't. They got unstuck. They got unstuck. And, and God was gracious to help them get unstuck. So I think there are some things here that I hope we can take into our life. Now, I haven't gotten to one of the most significant pieces of this passage, and I'm going to get there. But I want to I want to talk about uh, or I want to I want to kind of land here by talking about what upgrading our witness to life will look like. What it will look like for us here in this community, for you in this room to upgrade your own witness to life. The first is to adopt a new motivation. Let me put it this way. If it is building the earthly kingdom of America that has motivated your engagement with life. That is not the motivation that Christians stand on. The motivation we stand on is the for God so loved the world motivation. I'm not accusing anyone of that. I'm just saying. Okay. I'm just saying. Second, let's deselectify our loves. Yeah, that was a, it's a word. Take it. Use it. Um, we, ha- we have a tendency towards selective love. Okay. We have a tendency to do in, out, in, out, in, out. The thing is that Jesus wants all people to be in him. And so we have to deselectify our loves. In order to be a good advocate for life, to be truly pro-life, that has to be one of the first things that we do. So there's an opportunity here for confession and repentance of the ways that we have been selective in who we will love. And just to be clear, that includes you. I know that there are people here who have um, really challenging experiences around this stuff. And I just want to, if it isn't clear already, I want to make it really clear that you are included in this. It's not just other people, it is you. That the gospel, the grace, the forgiveness, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the coming kingdom where everything actually will be made right, that's on offer for you. We cannot exclude ourselves from that reality and work for it at the same time. Third, that was two things. Adopt a new motivation. Deselectify your loves. Three, be filled with the Spirit. I didn't want to skip over it. I'm going to come back to it. Here we are. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We see that actually happen in the book of Acts. So um, just one chapter later, actually just a few verses later, during this chapter, what happens is the, uh, the apostles and the disciples, they all gather together and they are praying and they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And Luke, Jesus says, wait for the, for the Holy Spirit, the, promise, the promised Holy Spirit to come and clothe you with power from on high. The work we do to advocate for life is not one we can do in the natural. We can certainly try, but it's not one we really can do in the natural. I, uh, in this transition with Larry and I, um, uh, I got a card from our staff and someone, and one of, one of our staff in that card wrote, may you always be desperate for Jesus. That's what it means for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be the sorts of people 
who are so saturated in the intimacy of the Lord God that we, um, that we operate from that place. Look, uh, anger can be a really good motivator. It can create a certain kind of energy within us. I want to be real clear, that's not the energy that will do this kind of witness. The kind of energy that will do this kind of witness is the one that's fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit and saturated in the love of Jesus. Finally, get on with it then. Uh, Let me be the one of the two men standing beside you. I guess Larry's here too. So let us be the two men. No, I'm just kidding. We're not, we're not angels in the book of Acts. But uh, <laughs> let me be a person standing here and saying, let's not stare up into the sky. There are many ways for us to get engaged. First is to become increasingly the kind of community that demonstrates this kind of life. So that's just a call for you all. The second is for us to find the sorts of things that we can get involved with to live out this kind of life. Um, Now, we have opportunities at First Image. We have a ministry, like I said, for people who have experienced pregnancy loss. Um, For those who are facing unsupported pregnancy, we are in the process of working on something that's directed at fathers and fatherhood. And so there there are ways to get involved with us, but you know what? I don't care who you get involved with. Our our call is simply to witness to this reality in whatever context the Lord has put you in. So in that, let me pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have first witnessed to us. That you have first witnessed to us your love for the world. And if we were not included in that world, we would not know the power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would um, convict us, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to see the thing that's motivating your work in the world, that we would confess our hardness and our selective loves, and that we would receive your love for ourselves as well. We trust you to work, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.